0: Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook but sitting next to Notion it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to Notion.com slash squared, that's all lowercase letters, Notion.com slash squared lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action and when you use the link you're supporting
1: all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech.
2: Well, uh, it's a great delight uh, to be here and I'm particularly pleased that so many of you have turned out on the warmest day of the year, uh, to spend it with us rather than drinking outside one of the local hostelries. Uh, it's, it's a, it, it's a, an honor to be with you tonight to talk about what is in some ways the biggest question there is, which is the nature of consciousness. Uh, what gives rise to this feeling that all of us, at least at the beginning of this uh, hour and a half we have together, uh, uh, feel the sense of being here, the sense of being present, the sense of the, the everyday, not every night, experience of, of the world as we, as, as we perceive it, what it's like to be us. And I do think that from a very young age, this is a question which we all address. I think it's, it, surveys have shown that the earliest philosophical question that children ask is when I See red. Is that the same feeling as when you see red? Uh, And and the mystery of how it comes that this illusion or this this feeling that we have is conjured uh, uh, is prevalent, I think, throughout all cultures and all times. And the interesting thing about it for me is twofold. Firstly, as a neuroscientist, and I've done 15 years of research, I was never particularly interested in consciousness as a neuroscientist. But what's surprising to me is how far we still are from zooming in on the consciousness bit of the brain, right? There are controversies about whether we found the humour centre or not, and it turns out that even the control of action and vision is more distributed across the brain than we thought. But we're nowhere near finding where in the brain consciousness is, and that it has proved so resistant to neuroscientific study is, I think, a point of interest that we'll come back to. Now, in a sense, we're here to celebrate and honour Dan Dennett, And and Dan is one of the most original and influential philosophers of our time. I'm sure that most of you are here because of your knowledge of his work. And what's fabulous about Dan's work is his his intrinsic cross-disciplinarity. He's fascinated by everything, including neuroscience, evolutionary biology, and artificial intelligence. And that's something we'll be looking at today specifically. He's a university professor of philosophy at Tufts University. I'm told he's one of only two university professors, and it doesn't get much better than that. And his books include Breaking the Spell, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, and Consciousness Explained, uh, as long, uh, as, uh, along with From Bacteria to Bach and Back* the alliterative masterpiece which uh, we're here to celebrate in part this evening. To engage with Dan this evening, we have uh, an array of of brilliance, um, uh, and roughly in the order that they'll speak, we have Nick Shea, who's an interdisciplinary professor of mind and cognitive science, who works with psychology and neuroscience to understand the mind, and he's professor of philosophy at the Institute of Philosophy in the School of Advanced Study, in University of London, which is in the Orwell building, isn't it? Uh, the Senate House uh, uh, in Bloomsbury. Um, Random International, many of you will know, is an experimental artist collective that was founded in 2005 by Hannes Koch and Florian Odkras. Uh Their work, which I think is fabulous, and if you haven't seen it uh, until now, then please do uh, take the opportunity online or, or in person, uh, They're here tonight because they explore the relationship between humans and technology and the affordances that that gives rise to. And many of you will have seen Rain Room uh, when it was on uh, uh, in London at the Barbican and elsewhere, and they've had blockbuster exhibitions at MoMA, LACMA, and the Barbican. And Tara Swart is with us, who is herself a neuroscientist also. She's an award-winning author and medical doctor, and she founded the Unlimited Mind... Uh, and is on the faculty at MIT Sloan. As Dan said, it took a journey to London for him to meet his near neighbor in the States. Um, she's a leadership coach, which means that she's interested in how neuroscience affects leadership, um, and has 20 years' research into how our brains work and dealing with the stress of constant change and rapid technological advancement. And then also, uh, in principle at least, uh, on uh, the network, on the uh, the oh there he is! Look, uh, the wire from Seattle in Washington. We've got Blaise Aguera y Arcas. Um, and he's head of machine learning at Google in Seattle. And he's very interested currently in how machine learning can give us insights into human nature and human behavior. And, Blaze, we're going to come to you last in the run of things. So I thought I would start off by asking you a quick question, which is, are you actually trying to build conscious machines uh, in your lab? Very briefly, and are you getting anywhere near it in your view? And you know, we'll give you a minute or so to address that just to get us started.
3: Well, no. Uh, so the, the kinds of artificial intelligence that uh, that we're interested in building, uh, in my group, uh, are um, practical and useful kinds uh, that uh, that can do uh, certain simpler kinds of, of cognitive tasks, like recognize objects and automate tasks, and so on. And and, and one can think about that as uh, as, as Part of what of what our brains do, Uh, you know, when when one thinks about about sensory cortex or motor cortex, uh, they do those sorts of things. But, uh, you know, I I have to I have to say that that's a bit of a that's a bit of an easy uh, way out sort of answer, because the the truth is that, uh, you know, in in neuroscience, as we have explored the way uh, the way the brain works, uh, thinking about things entirely in terms of sensory coding and motor activation, which are you know, useful things that are, that are interesting for, for automating in various contexts, also runs the risk of, uh, of uh, running into the Cartesian error, as, uh, as Dan would have it, where uh, you, know, you have a, a sensory arc and a motor arc, and you're kind of trying to bracket in at the center the, the res cogitans or the, the homunculus in the middle that does the actual thinking or that is the actual self. And, uh, and of course, those of us who you know who who have worked in, in neuroscience, I think all have uh, a strong hunch that there is no such center, and, and that's that's actually quite a distributed thing. Very good. So uh, I suppose the short answer is we're not trying to work on it, uh, but I, I do sort of suspect that work on on reinforcement learning and on really trying to solve sensory motor arcs and do language and so on will eventually result in um, in AI that, uh, to all intents and purposes, does much of what we do.
2: Very good. So. Dan, to begin with, um, we've got about 10 minutes to to review your life's work. In some sense, the book that's there is an anthology of that. And I guess I wanted to start with a slightly um, back-to-front question. Um, Some of us in the audience will be familiar with the work of Thomas Nagel, the philosopher, and he writes about what it is like to be a bat, right? What would it it feel like to be a bat, if anything? And the question I've got for you to start with in terms of where you've reached is, is, is a sort of meta one, a reflexive one, what do you think it would feel like to understand what consciousness is, right? Because in some versions of that thing, you know, it would be yeah. like a short circuit. Smoke would start coming out of your ears and the you know, or the illusion mm-hmm. would be revealed. But what do you think those people who might read your work, who, who listen this evening, what should they feel like when they've truly got it, when they've understood the nature of human consciousness?
4: Well that's a good question and I think the the answer is they should be sort of intellectually dizzy because of a, a recursion that they would discover and they would find themselves thinking about their thinking about their thinking and noticing their noticing and their noticing and actually you can do that now, it gets sort of boring but if you uh, if you have a theory, if you have a model of what's going on, you can get uh, wrapped up in what the details are. And uh, it could be very distracting. So I think that as we approach a better and better model of human consciousness, we will discover that people can play with their own consciousness in ways they haven't yet. And of course, we play with our own consciousness all the time. We fantasize, we problem solve, we, we daydream but there are going to be new ways of daydreaming. So you think, and we'll come to this, I guess, with with Tara a
2: bit later, but you think there will be practical consequences of the understanding that comes about. But I do want to press you on this. You know, consciousness is this great mystery, and somehow the sense of understanding it, the revelation of what's really happening you might suppose, would be a momentous thing, right, that if one really understands your work, we'll come to an understanding of ourselves and our place in the universe, which makes it feel completely different to be alive than it did before we got it. Is there such a revelation that you can present to us through your work?
4: (laughs) Well, I think a lot of people fear that that's the direction I'm heading in. Many people think that consciousness is not just mysterious, but in some sense sort of magical. And I'm the boar at the party who explains how the magic tricks are done. And that's what I'm setting out to do. And my view is, in a nutshell, that consciousness is a bag of tricks. Uh, they have evolved by natural selection and then by cultural uh, uh, evolution and then by our own tinkering with our own minds, our own self-stimulation. So each of our consciousnesses are different. And, but it's all just a bag of tricks and when you understand that, a lot of people think, oh, my gosh, all the, all the joy and beauty is going to be drained out of it. Whereas I think, on the contrary, it'll, it'll seem more wonderful than ever when we know basically how it works. Uh, the, the Cartesian idea of this magical pearl of mind stuff is boring compared to this because nothing follows from it.
2: So, I mean, uh, I did a lot of work over the years with dancers and how they see dance and one of the things that we've observed is that professional dancers, so people who are you know, years of ballet training, uh, don 't enjoy going to the ballet anymore right so once you 've b- achieved a certain level of competence it 's no longer fun and I guess as a professional magician to your metaphor, uh, going along to a magic show to enjoy it is probably not something you 'd be kind of ooh that 's this ooh that 's that When we attain the understanding that you 're interested in will it will it not destroy the enjoyment
4: of of being aware of being in the world i don 't think so and in fact, my my magician friends and I actually spend quite a lot of time talking with magicians. They have a lot to teach us. Um, they enjoy magic because they very much enjoy seeing how their peers, how their colleagues, do their tricks. And, and very often, the, their peers like to show off to them in various ways. Uh, it's a it's a it's a lot of fun. So again, we don't have time, you know, yet alone in eight minutes to review
2: your entire work, but. To pursue the metaphor of the magic tricks, um, you know, some magic is done by misdirection, so I, I get you to look here while I do something there. Some of it is by physical trickery, where the, the thing that looks like it's only got one entrance has actually got two, and, and there's all kinds of other uh, psychological stuff. Can you give us some examples of the kinds of tricks which you think are at
4: work in constructing this, do we
2: say illusion of consciousness, this story yeah. of consciousness?
4: I think the biggest one is one I've described in print, and it's a, an inadvertent and innocent trick that David Chalmers has played on himself okay, so and on David a lot Chalmers of others. A philosopher of yeah, who's David Chalmers is his famous yeah. for uh, dubbing the hard problem, and it led to Tom Stoppard's play by the same name. It's had a tremendously successful, it was a tremendously successful act of, of naming the hard problem. And I love to point out this a true story about a, a, a magician named uh, Ralph Hull, who invented a new card trick for his fellow magicians called the tuned deck. And he would say, boys, I've got a new trick. It's called the tuned deck. Here's the deck of cards. It's specially tuned. Buzz, 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 buzz. And then he would do the trick. And he said, how do you think I did it? And the magicians would huddle, and they would try to figure out how he did the trick. For years, he would do the trick. None of them ever figured out. He would do it 10, 20 times in a row, and they never figured out. They wanted to buy the trick. He wouldn't sell it. In the end, he revealed how it was done. The whole trick was in the name of the trick. And in fact, in one word in the name of the trick. The tuned deck. Which word? Well, I don't think it's the,
2: Dan, but maybe... I'm it wondering. is. Is it? That just the shows whole why you're the philosopher <laughs> and I'm the neuroscientist.
4: <laughs> he said, listen how I started. He says, I've got a new trick. It's called the tuned deck. The trick is over. They are all looking as he... I'm so grateful to him for saying that. He said, the boys are all looking for something too hard. They had it in mind that there was some new spectacular gee whiz thing that he was doing. He was simply doing all the tricks they already knew. By calling it the tuned deck, he was misdirecting them to look for one big fat gee whiz thing. And there wasn't any. that was the
2: trick. This is what Andy Clark I guess, who's another philosopher in this area, has called deflationism, right? Which is the idea that there's less to consciousness than we thought but in fairness, we can't blame David Chalmers for our sense most of us here, that there's something really important about consciousness, right? It's not some philosopher... So how comes it it assumes this importance in all of our minds whether or not a philosopher looks at it?
4: Right, I, I, I certainly, David Chalmers didn't didn't create the mystery. The mystery's been around forever. He just came up with a, with a, a brilliant name for it right. and convinced people that it is really there and that it'll still be there after we've solved all the easy problems. Okay. Whereas I say, <laughs> the easy problems, that's it. When we've solved those and they're none too easy, we'll be home. Now, now, why do we still feel the mystery? Because, in fact, evolution, nature, is also playing a sort of trick on us and it's a user illusion. It's like the user illusion of your desktop. It's, it's a simplified metaphorical vision of what's actually going on in your brain. You don't want to know what's going on in your brain. It's too complicated in there. So the brain, in effect, has its own user illusion of itself. And that's what consciousness is. And a
2: user illusion in the context of the computer is what? The sense that there's a... An op- I mean, t- tell all us what those that feels little, like.
4: All those little icons that you can move around, click and drag, and put the files in those little folders and all that, that's all. That's not what's actually happening on your computer. Uh, uh, the the designers have, have brilliantly come up with metaphorical ways of, of helping you understand what you can do with your computer. So... The, the parallel is this. Imagine trying to figure out how a computer works by studying the user illusion brilliantly. There's a name for that in, in the study of the mind. It's called introspectionism. Introspectionism, Right, because actually you, that's the starting point for there, all of us is what yeah, it feels so you like. You just right. sit there and you think, oh, what am I doing? What am yeah, I doing? And that's what what, traditionally
2: what you guys, the philosophers, Absolutely. have done, right? Descartes and his and no wonder Roman they and so
4: didn't make much progress. No right. wonder it seemed mysterious. Right. You're not going to find out how your brain works by introspecting. Okay. So,
2: again... One of the things that's interesting when you have an expert, even a world-renowned one, is to understand from within the domain where you sit how your work is regarded. Are you considered an eccentric, albeit a famous one, or do most of your colleagues who think about this from a professional perspective agree with you? And Nick, as a you know, philosopher of mine, somebody who thinks about these things, help us to understand what Dan's up to from a philosophical perspective and, and, and do feel free to challenge him uh, from your own.
5: So I think one aspect that's very familiar and runs right through the history of philosophy is that we have, from the first-person point of view, from reflecting on our own experience, quite a good idea what consciousness is like. It's this private thing. It's hard to say what's going on inside our minds. It's maybe even ineffable. And it's got lots of other qualities that we know just from experience. And philosophers have spent thousands of years reflecting on how there could be things that are like that. And one thing that I think has been very influential in Dan's philosophy is taking a list of those things, like that there's some ineffable property of my mind that I can't tell you about, and debunking them and saying we don't need to think of consciousness like that. And there's lots of good scientific reasons why we shouldn't think of consciousness like that. So I think that thing has been part of the movement, but it's been extraordinarily influential.
2: And to be the, clear, the dismantling of those has been through scientific findings as much as through philosophical arguments. I think but that's that, right. right.
5: And mm-hmm. that's led to a branch of philosophy, a bunch of philosophers thinking that if we're going to make progress on the mind, we need to be talking to scientists, neuroscientists, psychologists, the broader scientific community. And that, that's part of a larger movement, but that's been very important and influential in philosophy. But there's another bit of the way that you're bringing bringing the story out now, which is the word illusion. So that suggests that not just some of these things, like it being ineffable, but the whole idea of consciousness is something that's not doing anything. Uh, We can deflate it, we can get rid of it. And there's more resistance to that idea. And I think that's partly because people are picking up on the positive story. So part of giving this alternative account of consciousness is saying, well, actually, consciousness does do some things for us, but they're rather different from the things that the traditional self-person, first-personal reflective account would do. They're more about interacting. Consciousness is playing a role in allowing us to communicate with other people and do the distinctively human things that we do through interacting with one another. And that leads to a question, I think, for uh, your view, Dan, which is there's broadly two schools in people thinking about consciousness and its interactions there are those who think it evolved because humans are competitive and we need to outsmart each other. So we're these clever machines, we can work out uh, how to behave in complex ways, but since we're competing, there'll be a real premium on my working out what's going on in your mind so I can understand your mind and then that's how consciousness arises. It's the evolution of that capacity and an arms race connected with that. There's another quite different and I think more recently prominent view which is that consciousness evolved out of the distinctive human habit of cooperating, that we work in social groups, we act together, we act jointly, and in order to have fluid joint action, so just simple things like you and I lifting up a table together or more complicated things like you and I playing in a string quartet. To do that kind of thing, I've got to do some signaling about my internal states to make that work. So there, consciousness is evolved, and it's playing a social role, and social and... um, Uh, social evolution has been really important. But it's not in a competitive context, it's in a cooperative context. So I'd be interested in your views as to which of those is likely to be the driver of the evolution of consciousness. Because of course, once we know why consciousness evolved, it'll give us quite a different perspective on how it's likely to operate.
2: Um, if I understand the evolution yeah. right, if to the extent anyone does, there must have been something that gave, as it were, the band of monkeys that had the beginning of this thing an advantage over the band of monkeys that didn't. So first, you know, how, can, how can that thinking help us understand what's going on now? And what, what do you think was the advantage
4: that it conferred? Advantage to whom or to what? That's an important question. To me, the, the most interesting... Uh, sort of kink in the straight path from the bacterium to Bach is that when cultural evolution arrived on the scene, it created a whole new variety of interactors, namely Dawkins' memes, items of culture that evolve by natural selection, but not genetic natural selection, by differential re- reproduction of themselves. So the evolution
2: the, as we defined it in biology, but not acting on biological systems, but on these things he calls memes, which exist right. sort of in the world or culture.
4: They do. And they're, they're just as real as genes. Uh, genes are made of information, not DNA. If people make this mistake, they say, well, you know, genes are DNA. No. Are poems made of ink? No. They're, that's one of the vehicles in which poetry can exist. But there are many things in the world which are basically, I mean, it's a little awkward to put it this way, made of information. And m- genes are one category and memes are another. And they both evolve by natural selection. And when they evolved, the early days, most of them weren't good for anything except their own reproductive survival. They were like viruses. They are like the cold virus. What's the cold virus good for, for itself? And there were a lot of memes that were good for themselves. They infected our brains, and then they became helpful. They evolved into mutualist memes, and pretty soon we had language. Uh, I'm telescoping a much yeah, no, longer story. Yeah, we've story. Got, uh, several uh, billion years of... Uh, and yeah. and uh, <coughs> once we got language, we were off to the races.
2: Now, do you want to address, I mean, do you want to put yourself in one of Nick's two camps about what the original, yeah. as it were,
4: advantage of this consciousness thing was? Um, I certainly don't want to put myself in the in the competition-only camp. In fact, uh, I think that uh, some work by uh, by David McFarland uh, in Oxford, who is both an ethologist and a roboticist, uh, is very useful. And, and McFarland has the, the nice idea that... that Uh, It's only when you're, he's thinking about robots, it's only when robots have to sort of decide whether they're going to compete or cooperate that they have any reason to represent their own reasons. And it's this representation of reasons because there's this new option. Do Do I tell the truth or do I fib about what I'm about to do? And this is deeply important. You can't have language... Without, uh, without the possibility of using it to to fool people. And But also you can't have language without the capacity of cooperation. When you put the two together, consciousness is right waiting in the wings.
2: So now this business of... Ascribing intentions to others and its relationship to yeah. how we feel about ourselves I think is quite interesting because we spend actually most of our time consciously thinking about what other people are thinking because what we ourselves are thinking is kind of obvious. And as we come towards Hannes and Flo, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the, this business, this thing that we seem to do of ascribing intentionality to others, of of interpreting people and sometimes things as being -hmm. as as trying to do
4: something or thinking Mm -hmm. of something.
6: Can you
2: tell us a little bit about the role of that in your theories? Because it seems to arise very
4: naturally. It it not only arrives (laughs) naturally, it, it doesn't arise consciously, it's largely unconscious. We just do it by the seat of our pants. I mean, there are some people who have a theory of mind. They are people... That are high-functioning autistic people, who who really have to think hard about. Wait a minute, the way that person's mouth looks. I think that's a smile. I think that means this person is friendly and happy. And 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 uh, Temple Grandin is a wonderful example of somebody who has to work hard, has to be a theorist. The rest of us just do it by the seat so of our pants. They approach prince.
2: what other people are thinking or feeling as a philosophical problem or a technical problem that they can solve. Yep. Whereas the rest whereas of us. The do rest it of
4: us In fact, it's involuntary. Mm -hmm. You cannot help but interpret others as not just alive, Mm -hmm. but as in the midst of doing some intentional action. So that uh, automatic, that unstoppable
2: ability to read intention into things, I think, Flo and Hannes, has been an important part of your work. And we have some video that we can run now on a loop uh, which illustrates a couple of pieces of work that you've done. Um, so let's run the video from uh, Hannes and Flo, and then uh, as it runs, um, you can tell us a little bit about how you've uh, experimented with, if, if artists can experiment.
7: Um, Fifteen
2: points, there's two things. There's, um there's a piece called 15 points, which is because there are 15 points.
7: Yeah, there are actually 14, but we don't oh, okay. count. Right. Um, <laughs> so it's the, so <laughs> first, it's the minimal amount of information that you need to, to make out... Um, that there's a person, person moving, even that it's just like um, so. You can sort of see space. a walking
2: figure here, but actually those are points of light on sort of robotic arms. Is that what's happening in the film? Yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay. And it's you can quite you, convincing, isn't it? You
7: can like as soon as you saw it once, you can really not not see it. So it's the um, so we're really fascinated by the the kind of stuff that is that is um, uh, that is hardwired into. Into us, and you can play with that a lot. Actually, you can change small details to make the person more female or male. To make them even like, uh, you can see um, uh, you can see happiness or sadness. Um, there's experiments that people did with like how much you can scramble the information, so at different points, and you can still to uh, you can do that to to a large extent, and you can still still see it. There's a very huge importance on the on the legs, so you can nearly forget all the upper body. And just show the legs, you can still um, you can still see that it's a um, uh, that it's a person. And these kind of nearly, I mean, we're, as artists, you're in a very lucky position that you know we can take all the interesting bits and make them make them kind of work for us. But the kind of I think the most fascinating for us is the, the kind of c- cognitive traps that can show you that there's a lot of stuff that's that's running automatically in the background. You know, like walking upstairs, you don't really take every every um, step and then like you know where's the border between how much are we actually doing automatically and what we think we're doing um, we're doing consciously and it would be fair to say that these automatic features these evolved features
2: these user illusions are are the things that you exploit in your work in other words were it not for this ascription of identity of intention were it not for this projection that we all do automatically the work would be meaningless in a sense you're experimenting with our Brains as you construct work. Would that be fair?
6: I, I think we use these the, the, these functions of our brain to explore. I think, especially with this one, which is has to do with with embodied um, ro- embodied robotics or the, the idea that a, a technical surrounding pretends to relate to you. Or you and we wanted to use that to see how you relate to it, and whether you in fact build up an emotional um, response to it, which we think you do. Um, and so, so we see these these as test or rehearsal um, uh, 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 sculptures of, to, to, to f- yeah identify emotional consequences of these functions of our brain. How does it f- really feel to relate to something which fools you? And we I think that, that's the most one of the fascinating things for us to. Um, yeah to see what happens then you know if you if you put these guys into an old people's home and people start actually talking to them not this one but i mean this is happening and yeah. this will happen and inc- will be happening increasingly um and and we try to yeah i think through through putting these into museums and galleries and and homes to to start feeling out how that yeah feeling it out and rather than thinking much about it.
2: The ability to manipulate this stuff, the effects of understanding yep. it is quite interesting because in the case of this illusion, and I'm sure this is true for you as artists, you built it, you've watched it all the time, but you can't help yourself seeing it as a person that moves, that's right, even though you made it, would that be fair?
7: Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah it's like I think that the, uh, the second example, with the um, uh, which is called Swarm, mm-hmm. and that... Uh, I mean, there's two, back, yeah. there's two things. There's two yeah, things so going on. Dots. Yeah. So briefly, what, what's that, going on in that one, and, um, and then we'll come to that. So you have, so you have this um, perceived swarm more, um, moving, moving through, this, through the cubes. And then, first, there's nothing moving. It's just lights going on and off. But again, like, like you cannot look at it in that way. You see, you see kind of this like amorphous um, thing moving through the cube. And then there is the um, like you look at it and you try to um, you try to give reason to why it's moving this way or that way. It looks like, you know, there's agent, there's like, it does things for a certain reason and is run by an algorithm that, that, it's never the same and there are reasons why it's moving left and right, but it's, um, um, like, you, you cannot look at it without, without, trying to make sense of why it's... Moving. So Tara,
2: you know, you're here with a philosopher of mind but you're somebody who, whose living comes from working with people who aren't philosophers about this consciousness thing. Can you tell us the, the, the role that consciousness plays in, in your work with, with you know, people of all kinds, leaders and others?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I have so many questions and points from what's just been discussed. I was going to give you a bit of choice, throw a bit of free will and free won't in there.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I think my answer to that question, which will lead on to the questions for you, Dan, are that I deal with people who haven't even got to the point where they're worrying about whether other people are manipulating them or trying to influence other people. They're working on their own self-sabotaging behaviours. So it's about understanding your own, you know, bringing from non-conscious to conscious the things that you do that are barriers to your success in in life and work. Um, And it's connected to, to what you said, Nick, about, you know, do we compete or do we collaborate? Didn't we cooperate to compete? Didn't we collaborate with large numbers of other humans so that we could become the most successful animal on the planet. Absolutely. And my final question. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Going back to your swarm video. So considering that the Nobel Science Prize um, recently was for the GPS system in the brain, so based on swarm, shoal and flock behavior, do you believe in a human collective consciousness?
4: Mm. In a sense, yes. First of all, I think that uh, the reason that we all know we're conscious is because we all know that each other is conscious. And we know that because we, we talk about it and we read novels. And, you know, let, let Martian scientists come to Earth and suppose they aren't conscious but they're very good scientists. I don't know if that's possible, but imagine if, if you can. Uh, we'll see if Blake one, can build us one later, but yes. One of the things that they would have no trouble discovering was all the lore about human consciousness because the movies are full of it, the books are full of it, people talk about it. And so the phenomena are there to study. Um, if there's something that is interior and completely outside of science, I don't know what it is. I think we've, we've got the tools to study every nook and cranny of human consciousness, whether we want to, or whether we want to sort of leave people alone and let them um, uh, stay private there's a, there's a good reason to keep your counsel and not reveal everything now dan the question
2: you know from you t- to blaze in the machine learning do you think we're making real strides in the machine learning approach in this artificial intelligence approach towards the
4: kinds of things that yeah. you think are really interesting um, absolutely i do and the last chapter of my book is about the uh, rise of deep learning and other techniques, the new techniques which have led to a sort of rebirth of AI in the last decade, uh, Jeff Hinton and others have really uh, had some tremendous breakthroughs. What interests me, uh, many things interest me about it. One of them that interests me, and I wonder if Blaise would agree, is that all of these methods are in a certain sense Darwinian. They're all, they all involve bottom-up Tr- uh, massive amounts of sifting and trial and error to extract pattern from huge databases, in the same way that uh, natural selection has has gleaned design information from several billion years and millions and millions of species in order to create the designs that we have here. So I view th- I view deep learning as a continuation of sort of darwinian quasi darwinian processes now in silico and it's tremendously successful just as francis crick said evolution is cleverer than you are place do you
2: agree with that characterization of your project you said up front that you're not trying to make uh, uh conscious machines but, but but is is dan's characterization of of your of the reasons for your success correct
3: I, I mostly agree. Uh, I, I, do, I do think that, uh, the deep learning, uh, as, as, he says, is, is qualitatively very different from good old fashioned AI, uh, in the sense of, of being, you know, as, as he puts it, an inversion of reasoning where we're not trying to kind of, uh, impose some kind of Cartesian, uh, schema on, on knowledge and on expertise and so on and, and encode it. And then, you know, sort of work top down, but rather working bottom up. But I, um, I would say that it's more, it's more about
0: optimization.
3: Then it is about Darwinian process. And, and the, the reason I think the distinction is important is because, uh, you know, Darwin and, and Malthus, uh, you know, and, and that whole sort of, of chain of, of thinking, uh, you know, is very much connected with the sort of red of tooth and claw uh, competition based uh, fitness function as connected to an optimization process uh, through, through, uh, through natural selection and propagation. And I, I actually think that there's a lot of of uh, evidence emerging uh, on, the bio, on the biological side that things are much more complex than that. Uh, you know, for example, um, I, the book is called from, from, uh, from Bacteria to Bach and Back. Uh, there's another lens that I think is interesting to look at bacteria through. Uh, which is uh, rather than thinking about them as individual little animals that reproduce, uh, one can think about them as a giant tissue. Uh, And and I think that's an interesting point of view, because when you look at at the frequency of lateral gene transfer, for example, between bacteria, that turns out to be more common uh, even than vertical uh, uh, gene transfer from generation to generation. And bacteria reproduce by splitting exactly the same way that our cells do during growth. Uh, and, uh, you know, antibiotic resistance has been, has been found. The genes for that have been found even in isolated populations that have been exposed to antibiotics. So, you know, when you, when you start to think about that, it be, you begin to sort of realize that it's possible that when we think about antibiotics as, as killing uh, individual bacteria, they're more like regulatory chemicals. I think it's, it's slightly terrifying that the machine learning
2: guy from Google knows more about bacteria and the transfer than I do, but, um, as a biologist. But, well, please, sorry, the, the, would, reason, uh, the reason, the the reason damp- that I
3: raise all this, I'm sorry, I'm yeah. sorry to, to, to go on and on, but no, no, I say of this because uh, I, I think that, that complexity uh, you know, comes about in ways that we don't fully understand and that I suspect are actually more fundamental than just a sort of Darwinian competition. I, I think that there's something more thermodynamic about it.
2: We're going to hear from... You, Blaise, and, and the rest of the panelists, and Dan again. But now is the time to turn the uh, agency uh, over to the floor. Um, there's a gentleman in the middle there for number one, briefly. Um, you, you mentioned that it's n- uh, important not to um, see AI, and, and use, it's important to see
3: them as tools rather than as agents. But as at, at the um, art uh,
2: installation showed us, we have the innate ability or, or desire to recognize things as, well, human-like forms, do you think we can actually stop ourselves from thinking uh, these two working together in ways that we can't understand as anything other than than human? Very good. I think there was a four at the back here.
6: Yes, so as somebody who takes the notion of the singularity more seriously than the panel, Hmm. I just wanted to put the option to you that although you may say, well, we shouldn't make these things into agents, we should just have them as tools, won't there be often some competitive reasons why some people may feel that their tools will be more useful if they have more ability to act in the world rather than just uh, giving us advice. And that there is, therefore, risks of agents having more influence in the financial world and interactions with military and in the due course doing things to preserve themselves against what we might try to do to control them.
2: Okay. I guess we've got a pair of complementary questions, which I'm happy for everyone. We're not all going to get a chance on each of them. The advice seems to be, I think from Blaze and from Dan, to think of them as tools rather than as agents, these machines and things. But maybe we can't help ourselves. Maybe we will always regard them, you know, as agents. And perhaps there are people who are trying to build them exactly that way, you know, actively promoting the RJs. So I'll take you, uh, Hans or Flo, whichever of you wants, first.
7: Uh, yeah, I think even the, I mean, even the illusion of a conscious, conscious other in front of you, you know, that could... That could that can easily make you believe certain things or go down a certain path or take advice or so i don't think i don't think we need to go even that step all the way to create something that is conscious but the but the pure illusion of it that could already be uh, it's almost uh, we could reach
2: singularity even if we haven't because we've imputed
6: in in the end it doesn't matter whether it's singularity or not I think if you look at the consequences they are almost as drastic it doesn't matter who's flicking the switch in the end and and I think the investigation therefore of of these steps towards the very unlikely but still possible uh, um, uh, 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 scenarios uh, looking at those steps from now on it's, it's really important.
2: Mm-hmm. Danny, are you still sanguine, despite the fact
4: that... Uh, I think that the first uh, questioner is right, that it's, it's an, actually an instinct for us to adopt the intentional, what I call the intentional stance towards something that seems to be an agent. And it's, it's an overpoweringly powerful instinct. And I've seen people taken in by preposterously shallow... Simulations, and it's a it's a very real danger, and especially if we start using advice from such systems to govern our lives, we're we are hitching our fate to second rate, third rate uh, sources of information. Or that's a risk, and I think the main thing is I we want people to understand better. The, the limitations. Those, those in, the, in the audience who are in the field know how easy it is to unmask a system that's tarted up uh, with, with fake agency. Everybody should know how to do that. Basic, self, base, basic conscious yes, self-defense. They, yes. they should know how to expose in the same way that we expect, we try to get our, our parents and grandparents to learn how to tell a con man, uh, you know, an, a salesman from, a real salesman from a, from a, from a crook. Yeah. And the same thing should go for Ladies, I'm going to agents. allow you very
2: briefly to come on this. Are, are people, I'm not saying that you speak for all of Google, but in, in the project of making uh, machines smarter and smarter, aren't you guilty of giving people the illusion that they're doing more than they are?
3: Um. I don't think so. I mean, we we're Google is not, uh, you know, is not trying to make systems that that are personified. I mean, if anything, uh, it's much <laughs> much further behind in terms of its personification, uh, you know, or or imputing of, of personhood than, uh, say, you know, Apple and uh, you know, and Amazon and Microsoft, which have all given their assistants names, while yeah. while Google has not. Um, I, I I will say that uh, you know, I, I I very much second what Dan says about. Uh, training people to give the Turing test better, uh, you know, it's it's absolutely the case that it's it's easy to tell if if something is the real McCoy, you know, with a few minutes conversation or, or dialogue, and it's also easy to uh, to be fooled if you're if you're not um, uh, if you're not actually sort of. Um, a good uh, test giver, just, as, do, just yeah. as people were in, in taking the ELISA uh, psychiatry exactly. test from the, that 200-line program in the 1970s.
2: I love it. So we should be the Heimlich Maneuver CPR and how to do the Turing test mm. should be part of the, the yes. basic apparatus of every school chart. Um, right, let's take another batch. Um, I can take some non-male questions as well uh, as, as male ones. Um, so there's one non-male there, which we could do, um, which will be number one. Let's have a number three there. Good. And then we'll go for uh, the back. I won't come to you this time. So one first.
1: Hi um so you spoke about uh, the importance of differentiating between artificial intelligence as a robot and as a colleague, um, but you haven 't mentioned the idea of ethics and what is the ethics, what, what is your ethical view of creating something with consciousness to be treated as a as a tool rather than a um, colleague and Essentially creating something with the ability to suffer, and, and more than that, do you think that suffering is necessary mm. to be conscious?
2: Okay, nice. Um, uh, is it number what's your three number? Yes, over there.
1: Can we really understand
0: consciousness as separate from the body?
2: Okay, in body code, nice question, thank you. And uh, I believe we have another number up there, which that number is four, even though it's upside down. Yes, good.
0: Um, Given what you said earlier about how much collaboration has an
3: influence on the development of intelligence, perhaps more than cooperation, how can this idea start to infiltrate education systems and the other incentive systems that exist in our world such as getting jobs and getting promotions and even, even the language we use to talk about this is all based in competitive language. How can we let that move
4: towards being more collaborative.
2: Um, I mean, Nick, on the ethics thing, I mean am I right in thinking that uh, you know there's been historically in philosophy quite a big connection between this consciousness thing and this kind of moral rights thing and ethics thing? What do you think is going on that's there? That's right,
5: there are two views. Some people think consciousness is a central ethical of central ethical importance and other people think there are other things that are much more important, like whether you can plan for the future, whether you're in a social group that also has norms and so on. I think on that question, it's important to distinguish the two things that were coming up in the last set of questions. So there's ethical consequences of the fact that we're so inclined to treat robots as agents or artificial intelligence, uh, bits of software as agents, and we need to think about those. But the ethics that come from them actually being agents, things to whom norms apply, you know, things that we could criticize for what they do, I think that is conceptually possible. Maybe it'll happen someday. But to think that we're really anywhere close to that so that we should start worrying about it underestimates one of Dan's other lessons which is this bag of tricks that you need in order to have the user illusion of consciousness or as I'd say the functions of consciousness it's very very rich and it's got some of the things that Blaze is is programming and that's a nice tiny little bit and it's got some of the things that come out of uh, assisted cooperation and action for the question in the back but there are so many bits in the package we are just so far from being able to program a machine to do those, and I think we really are in the, in the realm where we're perfectly safe. We're not making a mistake by treating them as tools at the moment and for Place. quite a long time to come. I
2: told you waving would work. Go on. What's your, what's your take?
3: Yeah, I, I agree completely. Uh, you know, we, we, we tend to, uh, and, and this has been raised several times, we tend to think about consciousness as one thing, uh, as, as, this, as this unitary whole, and it's not. It is a bag of tricks, and they all have different purposes, and we think about them all together. So, uh, thinking, for example, about the ability to experience pain uh, the, the the need to propagate the self or to preserve the integrity of the self to self preservation at, at, at all costs uh, you know are examples of things that, that we kind of lump in with awareness of others with empathy and, and actually the, the interesting thing from the, from the psychology uh, and psychiatry literature is that even in people. One can find disjunctions of all sorts in which people have, you know, perhaps some rare disorder or some rare abnormality in the brain that that uh, in which people have the one don't have the other, uh, and so on.
2: Danny, you're not a vegetarian, are you? And would I mean, is there some conscious, you know, what, what's the connection in your view between uh, the, the ethics and the consciousness thing?
4: I'm not a vegetarian, but that's a long story, so <laughs> we won't go into it. <laughs> um, Another one for the I part. think I think the point about about suffering and the ethical issue is is right on target. The thing is, we don't have to make them capable of suffering, and we shouldn't. Um, uh, my uh, friend and colleague, Joanna Bryson, has a, a really nice and brave paper on this where she says, AIs should be slaves. You think, wait a minute. <laughs> There's a history and there. She, and she says, no, if you understand, if you, if you have make an agent which has no feelings and no desires... And, and isn't conscious, it's quite fine to have that as a sort of a smart agent that you have around and, and then you can take it apart whenever you want to, you can throw it out. It's not a moral patient. And, and if, if you could make artificial slaves that weren't moral patients at all then that would be fine.
2: Would it be okay to beat them is a the question also for the public. Gentlemen, you can come into this, and also I wonder if you can think about the embodied thing as well, because most of your play with this has been about bodies and how it plays out, but, but come at this I, any I, way you will.
6: I think what's, what, what would be very interesting is to shift this discussion a little bit away from, or at least to highlight, consequences for real people. Um, I mean, intelligence, artificial or not, is probably a welcome thing at the moment in, in the world, <laughs> in current affairs. But um, I think what, what Blaze is doing with his team will have drastic consequences for huge amounts of people that do not know what's coming at them. And I think the... Um, the, the that needs to be communicated and, and, and explained, and that has to do with AI. Whether it's, it's really conscious or not doesn't really matter. It's, I, I think the relevance shift is important to discuss these topics.
2: Sorry, do you want to do the cooperation-collaboration thing uh, at all? Do you want to engage with that? Because I do think this thing of, of whether an ability to understand our own consciousness and motivation can... can shift us more towards the collaborative from a competitive, leaving aside whether that was the origin of the thing or not. Mm. Is that something which you you want to speak to? I'd like to do the embodied. Oh, do the embodied one then, go on. Okay, okay. give it a shot.
1: I mean, I think they're kind of connected, actually, for me in in what I teach at MIT, because I think the language of neuroscience needs to inform education from primary school through secondary school to business school to business and leadership. Um, And in a way, to move things from competition to collaboration. Because I think we've, we've come to the end of how many times we can compete with each other and ourselves and still remain successful. Um, connected to that for me, in my program at MIT, I, there is a section on embodied leadership. There is a yoga class in the morning. There is guided mindfulness in the afternoon. Um, because we do need to start thinking about our mind as embodied um, so not just in, not just connected to the brain, but connected to the body, and that's what mindfulness, you know, sort of says is the case. Paradoxically, yeah,
2: bodyfulness. Yeah, we've got time for one brief round, and I will call upon you even uh, more than I did before to be brief. Um, so we've got a three there. Choose between any of those. Um, don't mind. Given, the
5: idea, given that there are concepts like neurodiversity around certain conditions are, part of, are differently wired, so to speak, do you think that there is more than one single bag of tricks when it
2: comes to human consciousness? Great question, thank you. Uh, and uh, number one, to end us, thank you.
1: We're familiar with walking, so we recognise the set of lights as a walking person. And we're familiar with putting things inside other things and moving them around. So we recognize the desktop as a set of actions. And I wonder if you could tell us of what reality is my illusory sense that I am here and now and me the simulacrum.
2: Thank you very much all for those questions and for keeping them admirably brief. Dan, let's take the last one first. Can you you help us to understand the question and then give us your sense of the answer? Um, But, But thank you for it.
4: Yes. I think the question you ask is one that leads directly to my favorite characterization of what philosophy is, which is from the late, great American philosopher Wilfred Sellers, who said that the task of philosophy is to explain how things, in the broadest sense of the term, hang together in the broadest sense of the term. Now, that looks comical in a way and yet it's, I think, very deep because what he distinguished was what he called two images, the manifest image, that's the world we live in, and the scientific image, that's where the protons and neurons and electrons and and quarks and everything are. And the idea that one of them is the only reality, it's all just atoms in the void, flies in the face of the fact that nobody lives in that world, we all live in the world of tables and chairs and, and uh, uh, the friends and smiles and opportunities and pounds sterling and all the rest of that stuff, which does not easily get captured in the language of science. Now, so the manifest image, that's the reality, the shared reality that we all live in, and that's where the colors are, that's where the tastes and flavors are, that's where cuteness is and love and all the rest of that. That's perfectly real, but there is a sense in which it's all a user illusion. It doesn't look like atoms. It doesn't feel like atoms, etc. Uh, so there is a sense in which that's it is all an illusion, but that's, that's the illusion we live in. Um, I'm going to Uh, ask for a a response to the neurodiversity question because I
2: think it's an interesting one. Nick, do you want to give a shot at that? I think it's a very interesting question
5: and I think it fits well with Dan's overall perspective. So people say neurotypical and neurodiverse, but I think they really mean not just the brain, but behaviourally, socially variable. And I think Dan's perspective where we, the ways that we are, the things that go into the bag of trick of consciousness come out of social interactions with one another. So we get them as we grow up as children, we're very familiar with that, but we also get them in very culturally specific ways from the particular cultures we're in. And we continue getting them all through adulthood. People get them in very different ways. So I think that picture should tell us why we should expect diversity and why we shouldn't be expecting to... shoehorn everyone into a single box but it also links I think with this perspective that says this understanding of consciousness can give us a tool for moving back and forth between the automatic the things that uh, random international are playing with and the conscious the deliberate the things we can reason through because it's not just that we can take things that are automatic and understand them consciously we can also reprogram some of our automatic tendencies so we can we're all familiar as children you're told consciously you do this then you do that you might be learning to play the piano or to type or to play hockey you're given a series of steps and you can work through them consciously and with enough practice you've programmed yourself with a new automatic tool, a new tendency, one that you can run completely unconsciously. And we're all doing that in subtly different ways, often very different ways when we're in different cultures. And we end up with quite a lot of diversity in these things that we we think of as kind of instinctive, right? We see something, we have an instinctive reaction, but they're not instinctive. They've come as a result of our interactions with culture and us being programmed, in a sense, with the things that we're getting from the culture all around us. So I think that leads us to expect a lot more diversity with this model that Dan's offering us. Very
2: good. I'm going to end with a formal and brief device, which is a question to each of you, starting with you, Blaise, so I'm going to say it slowly to give you time to think, even with the transatlantic delay. One very brief thing that you've learned this evening, uh, a new thought, uh, either from your own brain or from the brains of others. Uh, Blaise, uh, what, what did you come up with?
3: Yeesh, that's, a, that's a tough <laughs> the one the to with with first. <laughs> Well, uh okay, so I I suppose um one of the things that I've been thinking about as we've as we've been discussing, especially in this last round, is uh the the old philosophical idea of supervenience, meaning uh that you know there's a physical reality and that, for example, the psychological reality is at a few steps removed from it in a hierarchy and uh you know is real, but it's real in a in a way that uh can't violate the underlying reality of the physics on on which all those brains operate. Um, you know, one of the things that that has been so deeply troubling about uh, about what's been going on in the world over over the over the past uh, year or so, although arguably much much longer, <laughs> is is the uh, the kind of fracturing of of, of facts and of realities uh, among different people. And um, I, I suppose, you know, I, I'm I'm um, I'm confused about, uh, about uh, what, you know, how we construct realities uh, above that, that base layer mm-hmm. now and about even the idea that necessarily there is such a hierarchy versus a graph or some more complex structure. Very good. And uh, one of the things that I wonder about is how, how it is that, that collectively we construct realities that we can all uh, kind of uh, work within.
2: Delighted that you've found out a new confusion as a result of this evening's deliberations, but one that I think is, is, is super relevant and future Intelligence Squared debates will address it. Um, we'll go from that end. Uh, you can be much briefer than Blaze if you like. Um, okay. Give us the, the thing uh,
7: that you've learned, the thing that you've learned. Uh, well, I was, I was happy to hear that apparently AI is still much further away than we think. I, I, I still think that shouldn't, that shouldn't um, restrict us from... Preparing for it—it's mm-hmm. a bit like we know the oil will run out, so we right. do something else. So I think if we're in a s- secure space now, we should um, we should do that. Um, thank you.
2: That was brief, right? You did it. What did you learn? Thank you.
6: I, I, I think.
2: <laughs> well, look, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll give you. Thank you. I'll give you a chair's insight here. Because the two of them were of floor, both representing random, we said that they had to answer as if it was only one person. We did say that they could each speak, but we'll take the first answer to cover both of you. Nick, what have you learned?
5: So I, I, I'm quite familiar with the reaction that you get sometimes from everyday thinkers and often from philosophers from saying you can understand consciousness scientifically and saying here are some things that consciousness does and it's, an, it's a phenomenon like any other we can study. We're beginning to get a hand on it. What was quite interesting about tonight is how, in addition to the resistance of that idea, you have much more resistance when you think that machines might be doing it, and the little bits of software that might be doing it. So it's it's interesting to see how much stronger the reaction against this roughly mechanical or scientific view of consciousness is once you think of it potentially happening in a machine, which I think we're a long way from, but it makes us think about it, and it's interesting to see how much we dislike that idea.
2: Tara.
1: Um, I think that the more we find out and think we know about the brain, the more we realize that how little we know. And another small one, which is from you guys, which is that if you bring things down to the lowest common denominator, the thing that human brains notice are legs.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That was something I hadn't, and I've done a lot with false point lights. Dan, you you came last. What was, what, what have you gained?
4: I I just changed my mind. Let me. (laughs) Did you choose to? Well, I, I, yes, I did. Um, uh, I want to follow up on what uh, what Nick just said. Um, It continues to uh, surprise me at how resistant people are to the idea of, uh, you know, robot consciousness. In spite of the fact that it's fictionally available everywhere, we have movies like Her and, and uh, um, Ex Machina to take two recent excellent movies, but, of course, fiction, 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 way off there. I'm fascinated that a lot of people think that... Um, the reality of robot consciousness or, or super intelligent robots is, is actually quite close. I think they're being taken in by the fictions. Uh, and I would underscore the point that the bodies, bodies are really important for consciousness. Uh, Antonio Damasio wrote a good book called Descartes' Error, which was about how we use our bodies as a sort of sounding board and as a judge, and we make judgments about how we feel about things and that these are really very important. I think he's exactly right about that. Mm-hmm. And I think that means that Tara that is on, on, a, on the right track with her ideas about embodiment. Um, so I'm pleased to see the directions that she's putting that.
2: Well, look, thanks as ever to Intelligence Squared for putting this together. And I'm pleased to say that Dan will be signing books outside. It therefore falls to me finally to uh, invite you, as Daniel Glazer, to ha- sh- uh, thank our speakers and our contributors Blaise Aguera Yarkas, on the line from Seattle, uh, Nick Shea, Random International Hans Koch, and Florian Otkras, Tara Swart, and of course, Professor Daniel Dennett. <clears throat>